But hey, it is a fantastic night to be here in church, and the reason it's a fantastic night to be here in church is because we are beginning the very first sermon series of 2023 tonight, which I'm pretty stoked about, pretty geeked about this one. It is called The Notable Nameless, The Notable Nameless. And I'm excited about this series because when we think about stories of people from the Bible, you know, there are some of those people whose names just kind of clearly stand out. Uh, It's people like Noah, Abraham, Esther, David, Daniel, Mary, Paul. These are all sort of the, the big names that come to mind. But there's actually a whole bunch of people who are included in both the Old and the New Testament of the Bible who are far less famous people who we don't actually know all that much about and who also aren't specifically named. And yet these notable, nameless people can teach us some pretty beautiful things through their stories. And so what we're going to do is in the coming weeks, you're going to be hearing from myself, uh, from Becky Tucky is going to be speaking in this series as well uh, for her first full-length sermon, I think. Is that right? I did one a couple of years ago. First time in a couple of years, so that's pretty exciting. Uh, and we're also going to be hearing from uh, Pastor Karen DeKaiser, who you usually see at the morning service. She's going to be joining us here as well, uh, and is going to have a fantastic entry in the series. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be really good. We're going to be looking at what we can learn from these stories, because after all, you don't have to have a famous name to be influential to the world around you. So tonight... We're going to begin our series by looking at a story about two unnamed individuals who just so happen to be a part of the cast of one of the most important moments in the entire storyline of God. These two unnamed men, they teach us something profound about two different ways that we can respond to God's leadership in our lives. But most importantly of all, these two men teach us something profound about God's mercy and how God offers mercy to those who surrender to him. And so for that reason, I'm looking forward to exploring their story with you tonight as we take a look at what some might call a tale of two thieves. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That's always appreciated. (laughs) But before we get into it tonight, let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help in understanding his word tonight. Uh, So, Abba, God, we come before you tonight. God, I thank you for uh, the story of these two thieves that we're going to look at tonight. Lord, I thank you that uh, there is something beautiful for us to find in their story, that there's a reason that you included it in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight as we Um, As we open your word, as we take a look at this story, I pray that you would release to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, God, that you would open up our eyes, help us to see new things, help us to uh, peer down into our soul, God, and see things that we couldn't see before. I pray that there would be an unlocking of things inside of our heart, God, that have felt uh, opaque or have felt solidified. Uh, but I pray that tonight there would be a, uh, God, that you would come just like, like a potter with soft clay, and God, that you would just take the, the raw material of our soul, and that you would just knead it into something soft tonight. Because God, we want to be shaped. 
into your image. We want to look more like you. And so we submit ourselves to you tonight. And we say we need your help. So we love you. We give you this time. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. It was the day before the Passover in Jerusalem. In the late hours of the night, a praying Jesus has been met in the Garden of Gethsemane by a mob of religious leaders bearing not Torahs and tassels, but clubs and swords. Judas Iscariot came marching forward. Judas, the one whom Jesus had shared laughs with. Judas, the one whom Jesus had shared bread with. Judas, the one whom Jesus had counted among his closest friends. With a kiss on Jesus' cheek, Judas the disciple was fully revealed as Judas the betrayer. And so in the dark hours of the night, this great betrayal was unfolding. But something else was also unfolding. The plan of God. The mission for which Jesus had left the halls of heavenly places and descended down to our dusty domain for. The mission to secure the salvation of a lost and broken world. So Jesus was arrested and convicted in a sham trial before being brought before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Israel at the time. And Pilate initially rightly recognized that this man standing before him was not guilty of any of the things that the religious leaders were insisting he was guilty of. But the crowds were persistent. And after a time, he gave Jesus over to be savagely beaten and executed by crucifixion. Under the glow of a rising morning sun, Jesus found himself staggering under the weight of a large wooden cross that he was ordered to carry. He was marched to a place that one language calls Golgotha and another calls Calvary. Translated, it means the place of the skull. It was a hill where condemned people were sent to die. And there atop this hill of death, the sinners and the mockers gathered around and they jubilantly called out and cackled as Roman hammers drove Roman nails through Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet. By all accounts, it appeared that darkness had finally won. God himself had been put on trial by wicked men and he was sentenced to death. But what appeared to be the undoing of God himself just so happened to be the opening act of his greatest work yet. You see, it wasn't fear or wicked plotting that somehow forced Jesus to go to the cross. No, Jesus went to the cross willingly. It was for the joy set before him that he endured it. The knowledge that he was about to offer his greatest gift to humanity since the days of Adam and Eve's first sin. The gift that he was offering was mercy. The gift of kindness and forgiveness extended to a crooked humanity who deserved nothing of the sort. A salvation that could not be earned, only paid for by a good and generous God. A salvation that could not be worked for, only humbly received. 
mercy. And it's somewhere near this moment at the cross of brutality and unfolding mercy that the centerpiece of our story tonight begins to come into focus. Two notable nameless enter the scene. Some translations call them criminals. Some translations call them robbers. Some call them thieves. We don't know their names. But we find their story in the pages of the book of Luke, chapter 22, which reads like this. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Tonight's notable nameless are the main characters in a tale of two thieves and the two different ways that they treat the bleeding and gasping Jesus hanging on a cross in between them. But more importantly, they teach us something about God's mercy. And so these two nameless thieves, they are crucified, one on the right, one on the left of Jesus, presumably because of their crimes. And we know from the books of Matthew and Mark that both of these thieves, initially at least, actually joined in with the crowd in mocking Jesus. Now maybe they felt like, I don't know, it would get them some sympathy with the crowd. Maybe they were just filled with rage and fear at what was happening to them too. Maybe Jesus was just simply an easy target. But there comes a moment where one of the thieves has a heart change and one of them does not. And we see in this moment two common responses to God's leadership that is still true for us today. One response is right and one response is wrong. And so because of that, one of the nameless thieves receives mercy and the other one does not. Which brings us to the key message that I am trying to draw out of their story with you tonight. And that key message is this. God offers mercy to those who surrender to him. So let's take a look at the responses of these two thieves and how they reveal two responses to God's leadership that we can have in our lives. If we can, let's put verse 39 back up on the screen behind me. 
of that, or you can look at it in your sermon notes, which I know you're all using. <laughs> so looking at verse 39, it says that the first thief rails against Jesus. And he says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now initially when I was reading this, this to me initially sounds like, like a desperate plea for help. It's saying, hey, are you not who you say you are? Come on, help us, do something. But the word that gets translated here in this verse as railed is the Greek word blasphemeo, which is the word that we actually get the word blaspheme from. And so this is not a nice word. This is a mean word. It speaks of being abusive. It's being slanderous. And so the first thief, he is not pleading with Jesus for mercy. He is definitely mocking him. And mocking is not what sincere people do. Mocking is what jaded and cynical people do. It's the family member who makes fun of you when you decide to start a new diet. It's the workmate who makes fun of your political views at the office or on Facebook. It's the lady who pulled up to me when I was on my e-bike and looked over and said, oh, cute bike. Which made it all the more satisfying when I hit the throttle and left her and her sad little push bike in the dust. <laughs> That was a good day. <laughs> so this first common response to God's leadership that we see in this story is cynicism. Cynicism. So cynicism is the distrust of the goodness of people, of things, or of God. It's the belief that anything or anyone that seems good or honorable probably isn't if you look close enough. It's the belief that there's no sense getting your hopes up about anything because you probably just end up disappointed. Which is exactly where cynicism comes from. Disappointment. And hey, look, disappointment is not wrong in and of itself. It's totally okay to feel disappointed. Sometimes life doesn't go the way that we hope it will. Sometimes things don't work out how we hope they will. But cynicism is disappointment that is allowed to overstay its welcome long enough that it solidifies into a mindset through which we view everything else in our lives. Now, I remember this time, it was about seven years ago, when I really wanted to become a pilot. Really wanted to become a pilot. And I was pretty sure that that was what God wanted for me as well. And around that time, Sarah and I were beginning to get this sense that God was calling us to move to New Zealand. And specifically, that he was calling us to move to this city that we had no connection to, this city called Christchurch. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of it. And God moved and he spoke in a whole bunch of really dramatic and different ways to get us here. But one of the craziest ones just so happened to occur when I was looking online at this flight school that I thought looked pretty cool to attend. And I just remember saying to God, all right, God, I feel like you've been giving Sarah and I all these different hints about New Zealand and Christchurch. Um, I'm looking at this flight school. It looks pretty good to me. If you're calling us to move to the other side of the world, I need something a bit more concrete from you. And so if you want me to move to Christchurch and you're happy for me to do this flight school, then will you send someone to me and have them tell me that they saw a vision of me flying. I said, you do that, I'm in. And so I didn't tell anybody. 
because I was like, it has to be you, 100%. So I wasn't sure if I was going to get a response, but the next day I get a call from a friend in Florida and the conversation went like this. I picked up the phone. I said, hello. He said, hey, he said, um, strangest thing. He said, I just, before we got on the phone, he said, I felt like I, I felt so stirred to pray for you and Sarah and I felt like God's given me this picture for you. He said, but I don't know what it means. I said, okay. I said, what did you see? He said, well, I've had this vision of you flying. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, you were flying over this beautiful blue ocean to a land of mountains in the middle of the sea. <laughs> he said, don't know what it means. He said, but thought I'd share it with you. He said, anyway, how's your week going? <laughs> so five months later, Sarah and I, we stepped off an aircraft and into a city called Christchurch. Now, with God moving and speaking in such a dramatic way to get Sarah and I here, and with this vision of the flying thing, I was absolutely and totally convinced that my career as a pilot, was about to begin. God was going to open up all the doors. There were some hard things that had to happen. I didn't know how it was going to work out, but I had God on my side. But you know what? Plot twist. <laughs> he didn't open the doors. <laughs> I had issues getting a medical certificate, which is kind of a key thing that you want your pilot to have. You want to make sure that they you know, don't keel over at the wheel. Wheel? See, I shouldn't be a pilot. I don't even know what they use. <laughs> I also especially had issues getting the $80,000 that it would cost to do the school. Uh, and um, my options for getting a loan, they seemed pretty out of the question because I was not a New Zealand resident at the time. And based on some light reading that I did, uh, I did determine that selling even one of my kidneys wouldn't actually get me enough money for the school. <laughs> and so it wasn't long before I found myself still with two kidneys in this place where I was stuck between these two facts. On one hand, I knew that I knew that I knew that God had called us to New Zealand and to this city called Christchurch. And on the other hand, he did not open the doors that I expected him to open for me. And so for that first year in New Zealand, I ended up in the worst job I have ever had in my entire life. <laughs> I was making sandwiches at the airport for grumpy people at 4 a.m. and Absolutely, the worst part of it was they made me wear this stupid little hat with a bunch of stupid little smiley faces on it. <laughs> it was so dehumanizing. <laughs> now, hey, look, life could have definitely been a lot worse, but I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't extremely confused and disappointed with God during that time of my life. <coughs> Sorry. In fact, it took me about two and a half years to shake it. And during that time, I found myself growing very cynical. You know, I still loved God, but I was pretty disappointed with him. And that made me act pretty guarded towards him. And if I'm honest, it made me more than a little skeptical that he really was as good as he said he was. And so for those two and a half years, my cynicism, it created this really big problem for me. It made me so focused on what God was not doing that it made it hard for me to see that he was actually doing some profoundly good work on the inside of me. He was teaching me how to 
love him when life didn't go my way. He was teaching me how to not have my identity and my sense of worth all wrapped up in the work that I was doing. And it's also possible that he was saving me from entering a career path that would implode in just a few years' time when a global pandemic swept across the world and a whole bunch of pilots suddenly found themselves out of a job. He can see things that we can't see. So the first thief on the cross, he takes one look at the dying Jesus and he concludes that he is surely a fraud and a liar. He didn't understand what God was doing and so he responded out of his cynicism. Here's the thing. Compared to God, we are really limited in our ability to see things as they truly are. Okay, no matter how hard we try, we can only ever see out of our own personality, our own experiences, our own beliefs, and out of our own two eyes. And so when we look at what God is doing or not doing in our life or in the life of someone we know and we don't understand, we have this choice to make. We can respond with cynicism and miss what God is doing or we can respond with something better. We can respond how the second thief on the cross responded to Jesus. And that response is this. Surrender. Take a look at verse 40. So the first thief, he mocks Jesus. And then the second one, he begins to speak. And his response reveals to us this other response to God's leadership that you and I can have, which is surrender. It says in verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns and he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So the second thief, he does three things here. It demonstrates his willingness to surrender to Jesus. Number one, he acknowledges who God is. He says to the other thief, do you not fear God? He's beginning to see Jesus for who he really is, and he recognizes that to mock Jesus is to mock God himself. Number two, he acknowledges his own sin. He says, we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. In other words, hey, we are getting what we deserve, man. We're criminals. And number three, he asks God for mercy. And you know what really gets me? He doesn't ask for much. He doesn't even ask for forgiveness for his crimes. He doesn't ask Jesus to free him from his impending death on the cross. He simply asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. It's the tiniest prayer for mercy. But tiny prayers can be powerful, not because of how powerful they feel to the one praying them, but because of how powerful the one is who hears them. So Jesus, haggard with exhaustion, and laboring with each breath on the cross, 
He turns to the second thief and he says this, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. This is the mercy of God. This dying criminal, he makes the tiniest movement towards surrender. And Jesus promises not only to give him what he asked for and to remember this man when he comes into his kingdom, but to throw open the doors and to welcome him into his paradise that very day. God is profoundly generous with his mercy. He's more generous with it than we can possibly imagine him to be. And that's because mercy isn't something that God gives begrudgingly. It's why the Bible tells us he delights in showing mercy. It is his joy to show kindness to those who don't deserve it. He loves it. Now notice, Jesus doesn't rescue the man from the consequences of his actions or remove him from his difficult situation. Which tells us that sometimes when God shows us mercy and he forgives our sins, it doesn't mean life stops being hard, nor does it mean that we're always immune from the consequences of our sin. But if there's one thing that we take away from the story, it's this. God offers mercy to those who are willing to surrender to him. Would you guys stand to your feet with me? You know what I really love about this story? This story calls out to us from the pages of our Bible to assure us that there is no one outside of the reach of Jesus. There is no distance that you or I can go that is too far for his mercy to find us. All we have to do is be willing to surrender to him. You know, I've been getting to know Jesus for the better part of the last 15 years. I've seen his beauty in more ways than I can count. I have wept under the weight of his presence. And I've been undone by his unending kindnesses towards me. But nothing has moved my heart more than when I've gone to him expecting to find a disappointed father <laughs> and found mercy instead. Jesus once said, those who are forgiven much, love much. And I'm here to tell you tonight that nothing will make you love God more than when you receive kindness from him that you do not deserve. Nothing will make you love God more than finding his mercy. The more I've gotten to know Jesus, the more I've also gotten to know myself and my own heart and with Jesus help I've uncovered more and more of who he's created to be or created me to be I should say <laughs> and I've also uncovered more and more of who he didn't my sin runs deep 
just when I think I've got it sorted, there's another layer and another layer and another layer and another layer. And you know what? It's easy to get discouraged when you get tripped up by the same old things. But I'm a whole lot further along than when I started. I'm a whole lot freer than I was before I met Jesus. And although my life is by no means problem-free, it is interwoven with a joy and an assurance that not only does Jesus forgive me, he enjoys me. He likes me. It is his delight to show me mercy. It's a joy for him. This tale of two thieves, these two notable nameless, teaches us that we all have a choice to make in this life. We can choose to live cynical or we can choose to live surrendered. It's up to us. And you know, living cynical, it can be attractive sometimes because it offers this counterfeit sense of safety. After all, if I can't be disappointed, or I can't be disappointed if I never hope for anything again. But cynicism will also make you live guarded. It'll make you live distant from the radiant God who desires to draw you near to him in his love. Cynicism will cause you to be so focused on what God's not doing that you miss the beautiful work that he is doing in you right now. Cynicism will make you live without hope. But a life without hope is a life that God never intended for you to live. And friends, he has something better for us. You know, some people, they think repentance is a dirty word. But repentance is not something ugly. It's something beautiful. It's a chance to wash the grime off the gleaming silver of our soul so that it shines once more. So that it catches the light again. So that it reflects it the way it was always meant to. To repent means to turn from one thing to another. Repentance is an act of surrender surrender to God where we bring the sin of our lives to Him and just like the thief on the cross, we throw ourselves upon His mercy where we take a wild leap of faith and believe that He really is as good and as kind and as patient and as merciful as we've always hoped Him to be. And so maybe you're here tonight and you've been struggling with some areas of sin. Maybe you've been comparing yourself to other people and it's been making you miserable or it's been making you a little bit puffed up. Maybe you've been looking at some things on the internet that you shouldn't. Maybe you've been holding on to anger and to bitterness about something someone did to you and you haven't forgiven them. Maybe you've been mistreating your spouse or your kids or the guy who cuts your grass. Maybe you've left your first love behind and you've been putting the gods of wealth, security, and comfort in first place in your life instead of the God who calls you to be holy and to live a life that looks different from the world around you. Or maybe you're here tonight and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. And tonight you want to make a decision to surrender your life to him, to know him, and to find his mercy. And whatever that might be for you tonight, I can assure you there is no distance that you have gone that is too far for his mercy to find you. All you have to do 
is surrender to him. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the next few moments. I want to make some space for you to meet with God. Maybe you need to do some business with him tonight. Maybe you can feel him tugging on your heart even right now. And if that's you, I encourage you, don't ignore it. It's his invitation to draw near to him tonight. It's his invitation to you to come and to surrender and to lay that thing down before him. And so if he's really tugging on your heart tonight, in just a moment, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to do something uncomfortable. (laughs) I get one of those per year. (laughs) Although we're looking at increasing that quota. (laughs) What I want you to do in just a moment is if you feel God stirring your heart in any way, I want to invite you to come to the front of the room. And this is not about putting on a show. It's not about anything like that. It's about bringing your heart before him. It's about making a move towards God. I've heard it said by somebody one time that that when we move with our feet, we move with our heart. (laughs) And so if you feel God inviting you to come forward tonight, then I encourage you to come forward. Come down to the front. Find a spot. You can sit. You can kneel. If you really don't want to come to the front, you can find a spot in the room. But whatever you do, I just encourage you to move somewhere. Because that's what we're doing tonight. We're moving in our heart. So come. Let's meet him. Lord, we welcome you into this space tonight. We invite you to come. make room for you to move. God wants to touch some hearts tonight. There's an open door standing before you. If you can feel him tugging on your heart, don't put this off. Tonight, it's a Kairos moment. It's a moment to meet with God. It's a moment to get free. His spirit is here. He wants to touch you. Welcome you, Holy Spirit. Come and someone who's come in here tonight you're just bound up in the shackles of an addiction you don't want to be you want to be free 
feel like God wants to touch you tonight. He wants to set you free. He wants to give you hope. there's somebody else that's here tonight and you've been just feeling so distant from God. You go to pray, it just feels so dry, so boring. You go to spend time with Him and you just can't seem to connect. And I just feel like tonight God's going to put His finger on that moment where you got disappointed for the first time. And He wants to set you free inviting you to come to surrender again tonight. somebody who's walked in here tonight and just feel like I don't know what my purpose is I don't know why I'm here I just feel like I'm just drifting through life and the Lord is just saying to you tonight I want to reveal your purpose I created you for a reason you're not hopeless you're not a lost cause you are mine You've never left the palm of my hand. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place tonight. We welcome your ministry. God, I pray that we would come to you tonight uh, with hearts of surrender and that as we do, as we lay down those things that we need to lay down in our hearts, God, that we would touch your mercy tonight. And we'd find it afresh. And so, Lord, as we go back into this last song, I just pray that, uh, that you'd continue to touch hearts. Continue to move. Help us find your mercy tonight.